This is the Humerian Health Podcast. Spilling our guts for the well-being of yours. Here we are at the Humerian Health Podcast again with myself, Amy Baker, and Dr. Sean Bensinger. Back at it. Back at it. And we are very excited today to have Dr. Donald Teague. He is the author of High Performance Vision, and he is going to share with us a lot of great information um, from his experience working with professional athletes, but really I think how that can apply to the everyday human being um, as, it, as it kind of goes to um, visual acuity Absolutely. and seeing um, for our lives. So welcome, Dr. Teague. We're very excited about having you on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. Well, it's nice to get a chance at least to talk to someone who's in warm weather uh, <laughs> as we proceed through. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, I, I, your book came across our, our desk, and, and we always uh, kind of uh, roundtable and discuss these things as to books we want to discuss. And I found yours was an unusual take <clears throat> to um, what often op- optometrists and, and uh, docs related to the eye talk about. Um, and for yourself, you were, you said you were practicing for 40 years, correct? Correct. Okay. And you said that you've worked a lot with specifically how this relates to ath- athletes and athletic performance. How would you have gotten into that and what led you into kind of the basic practice to this? Okay. So in my background, uh, my undergraduate degree was in psychology and, um, I'll never forget a course that I took, which was called Perception. Mm -hmm. And the premise of Perception as a course is to say that if we have healthy eyes, all of us see the same way, but really none of us perceive the same way. We all interpret in a different kind of way. So when I got into practice and I played high school and college sports, uh, mostly basketball, baseball, softball throughout my career. uh, And, um, when I got into private practice and uh, observed what was going on, let's say even on a professional level with, let's say baseball, uh, all that was really being done for an athlete was to have them read an eye chart once a year and take a look at their retina to make sure that it's healthy. And because my background was very influenced by the performance end of things, the the Mm -hmm. perception, the way we, we perform with our eyes, I said, you know, they're missing they're missing the boat. There's so much that could be evaluated and trained that goes way beyond just acuity and just retinal health. And that's what got me started. Wow. Yeah, that 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 is a perfect concise analogy of of where this whole book came from, right? High performance vision. It, yep. Yeah, so help us understand, just for our listeners out there who may have not heard that term before, when you say high-performance vision, are there, just kind of walk us through what that means to you. Well, I guess the best way to approach that is to say that, you know, I can identify 30 different skills that we do and understand not only for sports, but in life, driving Mm -hmm. a car, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our high-performance vision really um, implies all of us would like to perform with our visual skills at a level that makes us successful at what we do. And in fact, in my career, I've worked with law enforcement. I've worked with the military. I've worked with the Joffrey Ballet. So when you say high performance vision, it doesn't specifically limit it to athletes. But 
these different skills and you know even most people the average person knows some of these terms like depth perception and eye hand coordination by the way notice i said eye hand coordination and most people just not understanding what i'm about to talk about would say hand eye coordination but when does the hand drive the eye it's really the eyes that drive the hands and the feet. So eye-hand coordination. There's a whole laundry list of skills that we we trigger by using our visual system. And that's what really created the term high-performance vision. I love that. And actually, I like your reference to how it impacts everybody, whether they're an athlete or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know kind of about your area where, where you're from, but here we're um, – really uh, adding a lot of traffic circles <laughs> to our roads. <laughs> and I think high-performance vision and understanding that might might possibly help some of our drivers handle that better. There, there, there will be a, a comical program for at least six years until folks from Indiana figure out what a roundabout is. <laughs> I mean, it is the worst because it's a coordination thing. It really is <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to him whatsoever. It's hilarious, and here's here's what's hilarious. My wife's English, right? And of course, I get the call of, "Do you do?" You, I said roundabout. Yeah, 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 yeah. They don't they don't know what they're doing. I said, "Yeah, I, I I know." But it is the same thing, isn't it? You're not used to it. You have not developed a coordinated pattern associated with it. But you set a completely different standard, which is the idea that uh, how our eyes see it and then interpret it makes the rest of the body respond. Now that certainly in your training and your communication with people has to take a different bent, doesn't it? Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, you know, let's use that uh, roundabout as an example. You know, so you approach the roundabout. Okay, you have to see clearly, but you have to have great peripheral awareness to know what's going on out of the corner of your eye because somebody might be entering the roundabout. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then you better have pretty good depth perception because it's a little tricky navigating around that circular structure. Uh, And and the list goes on and on of those different skills that I'm talking about that really get thrown into action when you're entering a roundabout, just as it, it, as it does on a, on a soccer field or on a hockey rink, you know, same, same demands apply. Well, that makes sense. <clears throat> My wife has two criteria that they have to have a brain and they can't be stupid. Now, that that seems to go somewhere in the eye thing. I'm sure it's relevant. Well, and one of the questions that we kind of have been uh, talking about here is just the whole idea of how stress changes. Well, really, every physiological response potentially in your body. Right. And I've never really thought about it in terms of how it might affect your vision, um, whether you're an athlete or not. And I guess I'm curious. And again, thinking about the roundabout as an example I mean, you can tell when people are stressed when they come up to the the roundabout and they don't know what to do. But, I mean, talk to us a little bit about how stress does affect vision, whether you're an athlete, you know, playing a sport or you're trying to navigate traffic or, you know, whatever. Yeah. uh, So, um, you know, when I work with athletes, I talk about the whole phenomenon of being in the zone. You know, that's one of the most favorite terms we hear, being in the zone. And one of the things that I've identified is that there's really different steps that go into being in the zone. And when an athlete is in the zone, they typically report that they're seeing unbelievably. You know, how many times mm-hmm. have you heard a baseball That's player true. saying, you know, when he's asked, how, well, how come you're hitting so well? Well, you know, the ball looks uh, so easy okay. to see. It looks mm-hmm. larger. Exactly. Mm-hmm. A baseball looks like a volleyball. Yep. Uh, and then the world slows down. 
I mean, that's kind of like the whole concept of my visual performance training is to slow the game down. Because if you create this uh, ability to, uh, to really concentrate well and to be in the zone, you're actually teaching yourself how to slow the game down. But the key thing when you talk about stress is when you train somebody to be more visually, cognitively efficient, they almost always will report that they feel a slight degree of stress, which mm -hmm. I call like an adrenaline rush. Mm -hmm. yeah. But they l minimize or limit very dramatically the extreme stress that ruins performance, whether it's driving a car, whether it's playing baseball, whatever it may be. So the differentiation is it's good to have a little stress as long as it's this adrenaline rush. I mean, I've always talked because I do a lot of public speaking and a lot of people are afraid to get up in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. And the difference between a good speaker often and one that's really not too confident up there is that the good speaker typically does feel a little adrenaline rush when they get up on the podium. Yep. But yeah. there's you're not a difference. nervous, you're not prepared, right? Right. It's good to be nervous, but it's not good to be stressed out. Yeah. Okay. So here's here, let's take let's uh, let's take baseball because of course that is the sport of that is the right sport. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, I guess you have the same bias I do. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that you you played all the only sports we really need to pay attention. to. Later, today. we'll talk about roller derby. Is the only sport? Well, I never <laughs> played roller derby. That I can yeah. tell you. Yeah, well, it's it's it is truly a sight to actually see a bunch of women wailing on each other and laughing <laughs> and knocking each other across the and getting up and this it, it's it's a whole different. Anyhow, you should you really should watch it a time or two. It's really, really fun. Um, I've seen it. <laughs> oh my gosh! It's well, then you should try it. Let me know. Let me, let me know when you want hey, a when lesson. You come to Indy. That's right. Yeah, we'll we'll hook you get up. Get a whole team out. And yeah, absolutely. Hey, this is Dr. Tig. We're going to teach him how to play. Um, let me ask you this: It makes me think because we're coming into let's say spring, okay, soon, God willing, and uh, it makes me think that one of the mistakes we might be making with our hitters is we're not actually preparing them before they start throwing balls at them and just trying to get. Um, hand-eye coordination because that's what they tell them to do right it sounds like to me taking your questionnaire and receiving some training as for changing that coordination pattern or the awareness of the coordination pattern possibly could grossly change the person's average because as you know in baseball uh, you know you succeed a third of the time you're a great success um, how do you approach if somebody said hey I, I want you to be a console consult to our players and not only are you going to do the exams, but you're now going to train uh, that, retrain them. How would you approach it? Well, you know, one of the big things, uh, and in fact, I saw a very comical example of this on uh, Facebook the other day. Uh, and that is, you know, from the time you were coached in Little League, the coach said, keep your eye on the ball. Mm -hmm. Okay. So little Jimmy walks up to home plate and he's been told to keep his eye on the ball. And the, the, the cute thing I saw on Facebook was this little kid in, uh, you know, with a baseball on a, a tee, you know, a tee ball player. Mm -hmm. And the dad is saying, Jimmy, keep your eye on the ball. And Jimmy bends down and puts his eye directly <laughs> on the ball. On the tee. On the tee. And, and, you know, so that, the example there is, and I, I'm, you know, one of the teams I work with, I've worked with the New York Yankees for 
25 years and I worked with the Oakland A's most recently. And I had a little gathering, all the coaches, the trainers, the, uh, the scouts, and I really taught them, you know, how do you teach somebody to keep your eye on the ball? It's, it's just a cliche mm-hmm. to say, keep but your eye on the ball, it, right? How do you do it? So there's a there's a step by step process that I immediately start working on with hitters. And when I tell you that even on the major league level, most of these guys have never been taught this. And it really would have taught them. I've never heard it. I've never heard this discussion. That's what intrigued me about this book. Okay, so here we go. And now you, this could be a big start for your baseball career. You know, I'm thinking yeah, at 60, be... I'm going to have a comeback. It's close. <laughs> this I, could I'm be feeling, it. I'm Is it really a comeback mind, if you've never? Okay, never mind. <laughs> I think it's a perception that I can play yet. How's that? Okay, well, that's good. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a few years older than you are, and I'm still, I'm, I played softball for about 40 years, you know, wow. and I still believe oh, I could do nice. it too. So anyway, here's how you do it. So first of all, when the batter walks up to home plate, They should really have nothing on their mind other than that letter R in the word Rawlings that's on the baseball. That's the first thing, because the worst thing with hitters is when they've got so much on their mind. Mm -hmm. This guy's got a bad curveball. I better watch out for an inside pitch. The more you think, the worse off you are. One of my favorite players of all time, Yogi Berra, Mm -hmm. was, was famous for saying when he was asked, well, how do you hit? He said, I see the ball, I hit the ball. That's it. <laughs> so so keep that in mind. Now, the pitcher goes into a windup. The batter should be looking in a soft focus at a zone that is near enough to the release point of the pitch. And as we say, usually most pitchers throw from about the same zone. Some pitchers throw overhand, some throw a three-quarter arm, some, some throw sidearm. But you generally know what, where that pitcher is going to throw from. So you're soft focusing on, let's say, the logo on the hat or the hat. Uh, But it's, again, not an intense focus because if you are too intense in the way you're looking, by the time you're ready to hit, your eye is exhausted and it's not going to work very well for you. So then you make a rapid eye shift at the moment of truth when the ball is being thrown. And what you want to look for is the letter R in Rawlings. And if you're not going to swing at the pitch, you want to see it going all the way into the catcher's glove. I made the point that uh, Derek Jeter was renowned for doing that. If you watched him and he wasn't swinging at a pitch, he would practically turn his head and aim his eye into the catcher's glove as the ball came by him. So what was he really looking at? He wasn't looking at the ball. He was looking at the letter R and Rawlings. Huh. Now, you're going to say to me, nobody can do that. Come on. That's impossible. And that, that probably is true. I'd say one out of 100 times out of luck, you might see that letter R. It's not the seeing of the R that counts. It's the effort you make to see that small letter R, which is just a piece of the ball, that will probably result in you following that ball into your bat longer in its path than if you didn't do that, if you were just looking at a ball. So one of the great tricks in teaching hitters to be good contact hitters is to tell their mind's eye that they're seeing the letter R in Rawlings as it's approaching the bat. They could even tell themselves that the bat is making contact with the letter R. And again, they probably don't really achieve that, but the effort they make to attempt to achieve it is what gets them success. And that's how I teach people how to watch a pitch. You've created direct focus. I mean, you have created 
a direct focus point, which is the half the problem you have in in, in the most important sport, baseball. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm, I'm sure it's the same for all. Well, I, actually, well, I was about to say that it's really true in all sports. Oh, if, see? if a player can pick out a piece of the ball, a piece of the hockey puck, a piece of the football, that really makes a big difference in following it all the way into your hands. So would you say that same thing is true when your sport, and this, of course, roller derby is actually the best sport, but um, when when the object is actually not hitting a ball, when there's no ball involved, but perhaps about getting your body in a physical space on the field, thinking about like mm -hmm. a defensive player in football or like that sort of thing. I mean, is it the, still the same principle when there's not a ball oh. involved? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, they it, put a Rawlings R in the <laughs> middle of their chest, right, to yeah. make sure that they – <laughs> well, no, no. Now let's take some other examples, and you know, okay. on in, on your behalf, I'm going to stick with baseball. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. But, Dr. Benzinger uh, always you know, wins. <laughs> uh, many years <laughs> ago, uh, the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers introduced the catcher's glove mm -hmm. that had an orange circle, orange area in the glove, oh, yeah. with sense. the center of the glove just the normal brown yeah. cowhide right so it almost gave a target for the pitcher mm -hmm. to throw at rather than just the vague glove there's another example you know and and that can go on and on and like i just say if i work with a, a hockey goalie i want him to pretend that there's a little white dot in the middle of the puck when mm -hmm. he's trying to stop the puck Mm -hmm. That same concept. Now, let's see if we can figure out how roller derby would apply. <laughs> uh, well, I'm I mean, trying to think of really how that would apply. But, you know, if, I guess if you want to be focused on when you're when you're skating around that rink uh, and you have a goal to achieve by looking at that goal with a precise point that you're focusing on mm -hmm. would allow you to be more successful in, in roller derby. Yeah. As well, I think it would yeah. be with wrestling. I think it would be with karate. Yeah. I think it would be with all of those. It's the yeah. conciseness of the position that gives you the, the angles focus. and forces to be able to do it, thus mm -hmm. focusing the eye. So that makes sense to me. But let's go on a little bit further with some other parts because there's a lot to this book. Um, let's yeah. talk about dominant eye and its importance. And I do want to talk a little bit about non-athletes and how this helps the, uh, the common person. Good. Yeah, that's a good topic. And I, I love talking about dominant eye. So uh, first of all, let's let's state some facts about eye dominance. Studies show, and they've done this study, they did it up in Canada with hockey, actually, that the dominant eye processes information to the brain 14 milliseconds faster than the non-dominant eye. Now, that sounds like a tiny little time increment but in a game like baseball or in certain sports or in life you're just driving a car 14 milliseconds can make a difference sure. uh you know in success versus failure so um here's the thing about eye dominance Their neurologists have studied this and they feel that approximately 80 percent of all right-handed people aim with their right eye now let me also point out what the dominant eye really is from birth genetically we are given an, a dominant eye it has nothing at all to do with whether you need to wear glasses down the road and one eye sees better than the other you know one eye could your dominant eye could be the worst seeing of the two eyes but still genetically you were born right eye dominant or left eye dominant so statistically 80 percent of all righties are right eyed 20 percent are left eyed 
people who are not same side eye and hand are called cross dominant or mixed dominant. Now, among lefties, of which I am, 60% of all left-handed people aim with their left eye. That's their lead eye in aiming. 40% aim with their right eye. I'm one of the 40%. Mm. And getting back to baseball, I did a study with 350 major league players and found that there was a, an inordinate amount of cross-dominant players on a major league baseball team, where we know that only 20% of all righties are cross-dominant and only 40% of all lefties are cross-dominant. We had, on some teams, like the Kansas City Royals, the year I tested them, had about 70% of their players wow. cross-dominant. Wow. And, wow. And in the game of baseball, if you bat lefty, which eye is facing the pitcher? The right eye. Absolutely. So now that 14 milliseconds helps you. Uh, in head mm. positioning. Now, if you were born left-handed and left-eyed, I would urge you to turn your head more when facing the pitcher. So to sense. anybody, whether they're playing baseball or just general life, if your dominant eye is behind you, it behooves you to swing it forward. So by keeping your head more in a straight alignment with what you're looking at so that the dominant eye really can maximize its its help in the way you're seeing uh, I think that's important. And it also improves depth perception anyway, because when the two eyes are square looking at an individual, you get a much better stereo view of what they're, what you're looking at. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes a yeah. lot of sense. That does. And nobody's, I've never heard anyone explain I that. In that no, way. and nobody does. And that's, that's so interesting you say that because, you know, here I am with major league scouts and coaches. They've never heard about this and they never realize that. And there are a lot of people who do trap shooting or skeet shooting or whatever those you know, uh, shooting sports are, and they don't know it, or else if they do know it, they don't know how to test for it. They don't mm -hmm. really know the right way. Would you mm -hmm. like me to give you a quick description of how you check to see which is your dominant eye? Absolutely. Yeah, that would be great. Okay. It's a little tricky to do in a, in a phone, on a conversation, on a podcast, because normally I will demonstrate it and show it to people, but it's really simple. You pick an object, like right now where I'm sitting, I'm looking at a doorknob that is across the way from me. It's about 10 feet away. And both of my eyes are square on with that doorknob. Now, what I tell people to do is take their two arms and form a small triangle with your hands overlapping each other while focusing on the doorknob. And your arms have to be fully extended. And in one quick move, just move your arms up, get that triangle to be lined up over the doorknob. And then if you're able to wink an eye at a time, wink one eye, see if the doorknob is still there. If it is, that's your dominant eye. The eye that, that is open, not the one that's closed in the winking action, is the dominant eye. If it isn't there, that means that you're, uh, you're not looking through your dominant eye. That the, other, the eye that, if you're winking and the eye that is open doesn't see the doorknob, it's not lined up. So that's not the dominant eye. It's a little tricky to explain. It's easier to show, but it's simply that. And not to to tell people to go out and get my book, although it would be a great idea. I think that's would. a great. I idea. think that is a great I idea. Should, <laughs> I think they. In fact, they're not going to do it right without the book there. Well, in the book, there is a there's a, a picture of how to do it, and so oh, you know okay. it shows you a little more. Because some people do get confused, even when I try and explain it, it has to be almost shown to really make sure they do it right. But that's a simple test. You don't need any equipment to do it. You just need two hands and, and a doorknob or anything off its space that you can, that's small enough that you can just focus on. 
I think we're both right eye dominant yeah. if we did it right, sure. but I'm not sure. I think so. <laughs> but I'm not I sure. Think. Well, 80% of the population, righties, you know, outnumber lefties to begin with, and most righties are right eye dominant, so that wouldn't be unusual. Cool. Cool. Now, you know, I can give you some interesting implications too with reading. You know, if you are right-handed, right-eyed, and in the English language, words flow from left to right. So there's a definite advantage to being right-eyed dominant in reading English. You know, if you're left-eyed dominant, typically studies on reading speed have shown that left-eyed dominant people reading English read slower. Huh. So that's another implication. Well, yeah, you know, that, that's that seems unfair for those like I mean, seriously, like yeah. children's reading tests and things where they expect you to be able to read a certain amount of words in a certain amount of time. Right. If you're. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's a disadvantage. But, you know, one of the things I always point out in all of these conversations that we make is that human beings are pretty good at rising to the occasion and learning how to compensate for yeah, things sure. like that. Yeah, and absolutely. they still can become great readers. Yeah, and, and oh, sometimes yeah, you start sure. telling kids that at an early age, and all of a sudden you've put some burden on them. But, hey, I can't right. read because I'm, I'm left left eye dominant. That makes sense. <laughs> they use it as an excuse. Yeah, that's why I don't take it. I was going to say, if your five-year-old comes to you and says, I'm left eye dominant, I can't read. That's not good. We don't want <laughs> that's that. Well, yeah, no, no. Yeah. I agree. So, so yeah. do you have exercises or things that you recommend for readers or for anybody, I guess, that kind of to help, I guess, address either dominance from an eye perspective or just their visual acuity in general? Are there things? Well, no, you know, uh, really, first of all, visual acuity is simply, can I read the eye chart? How clearly can I see? There's Uh, another component that goes a little beyond visual acuity, which we call contrast sensitivity. But contrast sensitivity is sort of like the, the, the higher skilled version of visual acuity. Contrast sensitivity is one's ability to really appreciate fine detail because when this doctor in the uh, in the 1800s developed something called the Snellen chart because his name was Dr. Snellen, that became the standard eye chart. And in a way, when you read an eye chart, as far as acuity goes, some of it is is biased because you know that a letter T is not going to look like a letter A. So you can kind of cheat your way through an eye chart. So contrast sensitivity takes it a whole lot better because it's testing your ability to differentiate fine detail. And the way that's done usually is with a with a uh, a line grid type of pattern where you have to determine the direction of the the parallel lines. And mm-hmm. as they become a little more faint, it becomes trickier to do. So, you know, that's one thing. Now, when you say exercises, my book is loaded with exercises that you can do. A lot of it applied to various sports. Um, You know, one of the big things you hear about in in life in general and in sports, of course, is eye tracking. Mm -hmm. Because when we move our eyes, let's let's put it simply. What's more efficient when you're trying to follow something? Moving your head or moving your eyes? What what weighs more? The head weighs more than the eyes. So these two little structures in your head can take you from point A to point B far more efficiently and quicker than moving your head. So eye tracking exercises are relevant in that, you know, you can t- I'll give you a simple exercise, which is really very simplified, but it, it's great for eye tracking. So let's say you're standing with a coach and the coach and you're in a relatively dark room and the coach has a flashlight. And you have a flashlight and the coach just starts to move the flashlight against 
up against the wall so that the beam of the light is moving on the wall. And you, as the player, will take your flashlight and try and keep it on top of the coach's flashlight Hmm. as the coach is going left to right, up and down, in a circular pattern, on a diagonal pattern. And you've constantly got to stay on top, but you can't move your head. So if you are moving your head, because that's going to make you less efficient, take a, a, a book and or a or a sponge and balance it on your head mm-hmm. and then try and do that same exercise with the flashlight so that allows you to strictly track with your eyes and not with your head so there's, there's a whole list of exercises like that yeah and they're simple those are simple things to do okay. um uh you know people talk about converging the eyes and 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 one of the simplest thing is to take a a pen and look at the tip of the pen and hold it out in front of you and slowly move it in, trying to keep that tip of the pen single. If it becomes double, then your eyes are giving up. So if you need to build your convergence, because whatever you're doing, let's say in a sport, uh, you want to follow the ball all the way into your eyes, you need to have strong eye muscle convergence. Following a simple little pen and looking in at only the tip can get you to be stronger at doing that. So, yeah, there's a lot of simple stuff. And, and let me also tell you that we're, I'm involved with a, a, a technology now that uses a virtual reality that is about as high tech as you can get when it comes to training eyes. That's so it runs smart. the gamut from the simple stuff to the very high tech stuff. That's what we've got today. Okay. That's so, great. Oh, so yeah. I was, yeah, was going to say, actually, one of the things that I really love about what you just said is the idea of you can train your eyes. I think some of us think, especially if you're not athletic, right. you think like, well, your vision is going to go, for example, yeah. or what, you know, and you can't really do much about it. So I love kind of that. Um, and as always, we never have enough time <laughs> on these podcasts mm-hmm. to cover everything. But there is one question um, that we were kind of talking about when we were looking at your book and especially thinking again, back on the athletic side of things, um, that concussions are such, yeah, rampant, a, rampant. such a, yeah, such a critical thing right. that has been happening. And I know that you, um, have talked about just, you know, what role vision plays in assessing and remediating the impact a concussion might have. And so I wonder if we could maybe just kind of close off our podcast and maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Cause I know a lot of our athletes and especially yeah. at young athletic athletes parents are very concerned um about you know the role concussion plays and and i i guess i never really thought about how your vision could i mean obviously your vision could be affected but how it might help remediate that yeah no i'm glad you asked me that question actually i ran a concussion conference two years ago down here in florida and and the probably the most interesting and exciting part of the conference with all the speakers we we had who were all very famous speakers was the visual aspect of concussion yeah. uh first of all let's take a on a football field or a soccer field player gets concussed what's the first thing the trainer does they immediately take a pen light and they check to see if the pupils are responding correctly correct mm-hmm. they also have them converge on the tip of a point because usually when you're concussed your eyes can't converge you just can't bring your eyes together uh and what and the third thing that's done and there's there's something called the king devic test which is simply a sequence of letters and numbers that's on a card and you know the player comes off the field and they're asked to read those letters and numbers that are spaced on in different uh sections of the card and they have to be read until the entire card is finished and somebody who's concussed takes forever to get through it Mm -hmm. and can't make the shifts efficiently so they make a lot of mistakes so what's so immediately what is the first thing that's being looked at with a concussion vision 
especially on on the playing field. But it's true in any situation. Somebody's in an automobile wreck. In fact, statistically, for adults, the probably the number one cause of concussion is not sports. It's it's accidents, yeah. you know, whether it's car accidents or falling or whatever. So and then when when rehabilitation is started, you know, immediately you go to the neurologist. The neurologist does a neurological study, a, a CAT scan or, or an MRI, whatever it might be. But really, the eye specialist who you see can probably embark on rehabilitating the problem faster than anybody can. That's mm. something that can be done immediately is to get people into exercises that can help eliminate the symptoms and the symptoms can be double vision sure. even headaches are visually related light sensitivity which the fancy term for that is photophobia mm -hmm. uh these are the kind of visual symptoms that are evoked from concussion uh can't converge the eyes well can't track well vision seems blurry uh double vision can be a case but not always the case uh, and light sensitivity. Those are really Just the key sense. things. That makes and and you can train all of that. I mean, yep. there really are ways to get people back on the right track again. You know, I, I've said for the longest time that, that most concussion victims, um, unfortunately, are pattern. We have the impact test, and okay, now we know. And, and, and at least we have some measuring tools coming in, but very inadequate, uh, very poorly applied, very inconsistent. And I've uh, read enough to believe that the um, that this what you're talking about and audio connection also because it helps re-coordinate the brain's functions and redevelop those patterns and then balance those three. Some of the German studies have been very good as to making a big difference, but I don't hear of anyone putting all that together. And I think it could make a major difference. So I oh. I implore you to keep pushing this and then. To me, I would love to know, find any audiologist that's got this down and can see the patterns and then coordinate together. I think then you got a treatment protocol we're going to be proud of. Yeah, I mean, two things to say about that. One is down here in Florida, I've started a multidisciplinary group so that all the disciplines can understand what each other does mm -hmm. and work together as a team. Because what even a on novice idea, <laughs> like, I love don't it. Don't you think? Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's something that should so be doing overdue. everywhere. Oh my gosh, I, it's well, so I owned a overdue. chronic pain center um, from 1995-2005, and it had all the and we coordinated care, everything from nutrition, psychology to the neurologist, uh, to the uh, injection specialist, to the chiropractic physical therapist, and we coordinated care, and our success rate was so much better than the standards even today. It's crazy, but nobody can do it because it's a cost factor. It's very, very difficult, so I am I, I'm proud to hear that. I, I hope sometime when we get down there, because... I'm you know, booking a ticket right we're, now. Yeah, we're heading down <laughs> for you to show some of these other Tomorrow? Things. Tomorrow yeah. will be here. Well, actually, we're there now. We yeah. just don't really want to yeah. say yeah. it. Yeah, we're going to be knock, knocking on your door shortly. That's it. Hey, listen, um, yeah, we have run out of time. We're a little bit over, but the but the information is fabulous. So, good. so we want to push people on your book a little bit. The High Performance Vision by Dr. Donald Teague. And thank you so much and they uh, can for get being your, here. And they can get your book on... Yeah, you, the book is available on Amazon, and it can also be available on the website of the publisher, which is Square One Publishers. Okay. Uh, they're out of uh, Long Island, and uh, you know that's another option too. But Amazon has the book as well. Okay. Fabulous. And do they? Do you have a website or anything that you want to also share with our um, listeners? Well, or you primarily know, the, the only book? website. 
the one website that I do have, which relates to the sports end of things, is um, it's uh, www.highperformancevisionassociates.com. Okay. Okay. And that's got my group nationally. We have a group of 75 doctors who are all all tuned into what I'm tuned into. And we call ourselves the A-team, not the <laughs> A-team. That's nice. great. That's great. Well, Love thank it. you so much. Doctor, it was fabulous. Great information. Um, we appreciate you. Let, let us know when you want to come up and have a derby lesson. We'll be happy to, <laughs> we'll be happy to hook you up. <laughs> Nay, thank you very much. I enjoyed speaking to you guys. You're great. Thank you okay, so much. Have a great day. Have a good one. Amy Baker, Dr. Sean Benzinger. Humarian Health Podcast. Spilling our guts. For the well-being of yours. That's right. Thanks for having the guts to listen to the Humarian Health Podcast. If you have things you'd like to gut check, send us an email at gutcheck at humarian.com.